This episode, I'm joined once again by Grant Kaplan to discuss his book, Faith and the Reason Through Christian History, a Theological Essay. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep it running, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Grant Kaplan, thanks very much once again for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Pleasure and an honor to be here. Thanks so much for having me, James. Uh, we're going to be discussing your book, uh, which was published September this year, 2022, Faith and Reason Through Christian History, a Theological Essay. Uh, this was published by the uh, Catholic University of America Press, who I should say were kind enough to send me uh, a digital copy of the book. So thanks very much. And this is a book, as many people might imagine, uh, it's, it's a history of the philosophical and theological dialogue between faith and reason once uh we could say once the life of christ is um been and passed and once we're into the world of we now have this knowledge what do we do with it and how what relationship do we have between just having faith how far can we uh how, you know how what are the limits to reason with respect to faith and to a certain extent where does grace come in and it's a it's a history of this all the way through to, yeah, pretty much the present day, dealing with all the challenges on the way. So um, it's really one of the best introductions I've read to this dialogue. And as I said to you before we started recording, it's the kind of book I wish I'd had um, or I'd wish I'd wish had been written, and I'm glad it now has, before I'd, before I'd become a Catholic. Because it's such a great, very concise, but still rigorous enough to sink your teeth into overview of this dialogue and it sort of allows someone to quite quickly even though it is a long book you know to call it an essay as we were talking about before it is a how many pages is it about 300 something i think it came out about 350 350 page 350 page essay um it it you know it, it gives one all the knowledge they need in a way to to feel up to date with this dialogue so yeah just um tell us a little bit about the book and and um why you decided to write it i guess well, I decided to write it because I was asked to write it. Um, and uh, that was the first uh, inclination. And then when I thought about whether or not I should say yes, um, you know, I was thinking about teaching a course on this. And uh, and in the course of teaching a course on faith and reason, I could kind of see certain ways in which um, writing the book would be a fun, a fun challenge, a good exercise um, C.S. Lewis, Lewis used to say that um, I write the books that I want to read, and I didn't know of a book that did the kind of history of the discussion all the way through, you know, from basically the first to the 21st century. And so, um, I, you know, I wanted to uh, do do the work to be able to kind of see where that led. And uh, even though I had, you know, outlines and figures that I wanted to talk about, I was really challenged to not make it overly long. I mean, you mentioned the link. I don't link that I want to scare off your your listeners that, you know, the, the pages are sort of generously spaced and the margins are, are nice and wide. So it's a it's a fast uh, 350 page book. Um, so uh, the tie the type is is isn't too small um, No, But I, I so I, I think the, the book basically accomplished what I set out to accomplish is kind of trace some of the key moments in Christian history where this debate goes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And 
I mean, if you were to try articulate what that really what this debate is in a nutshell, I mean, is it as simple as what role does reason play when we're talking about faith or is there something more going on there? Yeah, I mean, the role that reason plays certainly and the kind of tension between sort of philosophical spirit and the, uh, you know, the the experience of biblical revelation, um, you know, St. Paul isn't in a classroom. I mean, he gets knocked off his horse, right? Uh, he'd, he'd spend some time in a classroom, certainly, but uh, some people have experiences. They have encounters with the divine, and somehow the challenge for Christianity is to kind of preserve the individual experience that one has in one's faith life while also, um, you know, doing what um, to, uh, what Peter 3.15 asks, which is to give, you know, give an account of the things you believe. Mm. So I guess here's the, uh, in a way, the first million dollar question why can't why why grant why can't i just believe why do i need to reason all this stuff why can't i just sit down and say you know what i believe in god i don't need to work all this out why why do we why do we need reason why is it in a way mandatory well the working out of it is not is really not something that's required for the believer and there's been plenty of uh uh you know illiterate believers uh, or believers who didn't have much of an education or all kinds of believers who, who didn't have uh, didn't ask these questions of, uh, about um, the, the reason interrogates faith with. And that's that's fine. Um, but the challenge comes when asked uh, to to give an account or to explain or to justify one's beliefs and for someone who doesn't have belief, they they just they uh, they their right to ask. Well, what why? What underlies this? What's the foundation of it? Um, how can you justify belief in this God with what we know about science? Um, so all of these are questions, and that uh, you know Christians have a duty to preach the gospel, um, and that this sometimes means. The kind of preaching that Paul did in Acts 17 when he's talking to the the philosophers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I guess in relation to that question, the the I'm not sure. I'm fairly sure it's considered a heresy, but the the incorrect attitude, I should say. But I'm fairly sure it's a heresy of fideism. Of we don't need to have the we don't need we don't need to justify. We don't need to reason it. We can just believe. Was that was that a fairly um quick phenomenon was that something that the the church was quick to say no come on we we need we need to justify our beliefs we can't just go around uh saying we just believe this don't worry about it don't worry about the rest yeah i mean the 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 most important declaration is from the fifth lateran council i think in you know 1512 1513 where it says that philosophical and theological beliefs must be compatible and mm -hmm. so if something's true in philosophy or true in natural science, it can't be false in theology and vice versa. And so uh, so the, there has to be a kind of coherence to one's worldview. You know, if if um, if one wants to believe in a biblical God of creation, 
and one wants to believe in some sort of scientific Darwinian account of how uh, creatures came to be, there needs to be a way that these are reconciled. They can't just simply can't say in my in my science class, my biology class, I believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, but in my theology class, I believe it's, or, you know, you know, 6 billion years old versus 6,000 years old. Uh, when one has to have a kind of coherent set of beliefs. So you could say the, the synthesis between these two is always a march towards the truth, whatever it might end yes. up to be. Yeah. Mm. And the last two popes, I mean, Pope Benedict and, and Pope John Paul uh, II, they both robustly confirmed this. And so in an era of increasing irrationalism and certain kind of postmodern claims and, you know, all, all kinds of uh, people saying all kinds of things, it's the popes, the popes who are saying, no, we must confirm reason. We must stand up for reason, which is, you know, a great a great irony, uh, if especially to the secular mindset. Do you feel do you feel even though we live um, in this what seems to be sort of post-enlightenment secular age of high reason where reason has basically become our God for its own sake, we actually aren't all that reasonable? Yes, yes, <laughs> that's uh, definitely true. The evidence keeps mounting. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, your book obviously begins right at the beginning, um, you know, right at the beginning with, with Paul and the apostles. And But does this does this debate begin, this di well, not debate, does this dialogue begin pretty much immediately, you know, after the resurrection? You know, what, basically the question, what do we do with Revelation? What do we do with this, this the, you know, the prophet who has fulfilled the Old Testament, this man, this God-man, well, that was sort of worked out in time in a way, this God-man, Jesus Christ, what do we do with all this and how, you know, does this begin basically immediately? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the, the sort of crisis of explaining how you, how you maintain monotheism while also maintaining the divinity of Jesus. This was an immediate uh, thing that needed to be worked out. It took a long time to work out. I'd say that the, you know, the question about how to relate, you, know, you can't really use the word secular, that would be anachronistic, but how to relate kind of Greek philosophical worldviews um, with biblical revelation, that's, as as Pope Emeritus Benedict points out, that's something that uh, the uh, Jews are already dealing with, especially in the process of the Septuagint. I mean, he sees the Septuagint as already kind of intermingling, um, uh, uh, you know, revelation and, uh, and and philosophy, but certainly. You know the questions about what what to do with these claims, how to negotiate them, and then in in the creeds in the fourth century creeds, you know some of the terms that are used like homoousion, uh, which we say consubstantial or one one in being with was the old translation. I mean that's a term that's not in scripture. Mm -hmm. Trinity is not a term that's in scripture. And uh, these were terms borrowed, especially well homoousion was borrowed from the Greek philosophical lexicon and given a kind of Christian grammar. But uh, this is a term that uh, was used to um, explain 
what Christians believe. And so even in the creeds, you already have a kind of intermingling of philosophy and faith. Mm -hmm. But you also, I mean, and this is something you emphasize, you also bring in the fact that early on, especially with the the apostolic writings and the, um, the, the early church fathers, you bring in the fact that you also have wisdom. You also have this sort of fount of wisdom. And it's just a small term that I wanted to bring in because it does it does differ. You know, so, you know, when we talk about the Catholic and the Orthodox Church, we talk about scripture and tradition. And tradition in itself is, is, is full of this wisdom. But in this sense, can we rely on wisdom to sort of bolster the argument of reason in terms of our faith? Yeah, I mean, wisdom um, in some circles has been considered like one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Um, and wisdom is like identified with God, like in the book of wisdom. And so, um, uh, yeah, so I think there's a stronger sense in the way the term wisdom gets used is that it is a, um, you know, it's a kind of graced activity of the mind. Um, what I say in the book is that this is also true of reason in the pre-modern period, that reason is also not just something we do on, in this kind of autonomous natural realm cut off from the supernatural, but it's also an activity kind of elevated by grace. And so that's not, it's not reason exists on a kind of plane that is uh, self-contained, autonomous, um, uh, purely natural. And then you have revelation or grace or whatever, and it's up on a different plane. And it's a matter of connecting these two. I, I, I'd want to already be thinking that reason is on this sort of uh, a lower rung on this kind of graced ladder of thought. So this, this, do you think this dialogue couldn't really be without grace at all in a way? Um. Well, certainly, well, certainly you, I mean, you don't have faith without grace, right? The Ephesians 2, uh, 2, 2, 2, 6 through 8. Um, and, uh, and so you, you need, uh, grace for faith. And then I would say that, uh, yeah, re reason is also, uh, um, uh, understood by most pre-modern thinkers, theologians as a, it also a graced activity. Mm. Can it can it be um can it be tainted? Yes. I mean sin taints everything. Mm. And so uh our uh in the fallen state of humanity after being expelled from from Eden, our reason is certainly tainted, but um well, I mean you have to be a little bit careful here because for Catholics they want to say that we maintain all of our natural faculties. And what's lost or what are like Aquinas calls like the goods of nature um, and uh, the super, super added gifts. But, um, you know, Calvin and Luther are much more strongly in the camp of like the rational faculty itself is tainted. And here, you know, again, if you if you think of reason as a kind of purely autonomous activity the catholics would say no but if you think of it as something that is uh kind of lifted up in a sense by divine assistance to reason well we need some sort of divine boost that that then then the in that sense the catholic could agree with with luther and and calvin mm, wow they will most definitely 
pop up nearer the end because that's when everything starts to get tricky. And in a way, you know, it was sort of funny reading your book because you, as you said, the, the synthesis of these two, faith and reason, is dealing with truth and ultimately what this his, history is. Not, not probably the first two thirds of the book, but then you suddenly hit this point in history. Where you suddenly go, yeah, truth just gets absolutely shattered, and really, you know, I remember looking at the the chapters for the book, and then it sort of said postmodernism, and I thought, yeah, okay, you know, that's when it's all going to start kicking off. But um, one thing I want to perhaps jump back to and stretch out maybe over the whole history and just ask you this question, because obviously, as you said, that one of the first things that they're, uh, they're, these the, the early Christians, um, the early Christian writers and thinkers who are going to be the, the, what they're going to be dealing with in terms of the the structured philosophy of the day is the Greek philosophy. It's Platonism and Aristotle as well. But earlier on, it's more more so Plato, as I understand it. Do you think that this discussion between Christianity and Platonism, which is one of the earliest discussions of trying to find where how this is all going to fit together, do you think this is even over? No, it's definitely not. Um, I mean, Plato's been this continual resource. And so uh, you, you obviously get both you know, people like Augustine. I mean, memorably in the Confessions, Book 7, you know, is confused. He's he's left the Manichees. He thinks they're bunk. He's met Ambrose. But then he's like a skeptic. He's just sort of in the middle, like, I can't really know anything. And then he says, you know, I read the translated books of the Platonists and it opened my mind. And what they were saying was, you know, what John was saying in the prologue to John's gospel. And, uh, and this helped me think about God and the origin of evil in different ways. And the the Greek, uh, you know, fathers, the, the Cappadocians and Origen and, and, and Athanasius are certainly drawing on on Plato and they're, you know, weaving together the Genesis story with Plato's Timaeus, uh, the dialogue where he talks about the you know origin of the universe. Um, but it, it does definitely continue. Um, and a lot of talk in Christianity about the reintroduction of Aristotle in the late 12th and 13th century that impacts, you know, certainly uh, the University of Paris and Aquinas and Bonaventure, and everybody's kind of wild about Aristotle. But there, there's still strong Platonic uh, themes in in uh, in someone like Aquinas and also Bonaventure, and then. You know, up in the early modern period, you get the Cambridge Platonists, uh, a group of thinkers around Cambridge who are discovering uh, Plato and uh, in new ways and, and also Plotinus. Um, and this continues up until very recently with that radical Orthodox movement of John Milbank, Catherine Pickstock, Graham Ward. And, you know, very early on when people are trying to figure this out, you know, what, what are they doing? What are they up to? People who knew the history of thought in uh, in, 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 in the continent on the British Isles immediately said, ah, this is Cambridge Platonism here. And if you understand Cambridge Platonism, you'll understand. So, so you have it all the way up into the 21st century. I mean, you could talk about more sort of Platonisms, but I, I think uh, that's going to be long, a fruitful sort of conversation between pl the Platonic tradition and Christianity. Mm. So where did they where did they immediately have to find a difference? They obviously had to fit Christ into this discussion. So do you think maybe that's 
in a in a way the big first clear philo- philosophical step of you know platonism is is the philosophy of the day and we need to find a way to fit fit christ in or or to make christianity work within this framework well i think um you know i am in this sense a pluralist in that there are a lot of different philosophical accounts which do certain things well do other things less well and depending on one sort of disposition background you know uh training education one might find in you know aristotelianism or platonism or certain modern philosophical discourses like analytic philosophy or um phenomenology uh ways in which uh, that that sort of language is helpful to explain the faith mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so one one thing i guess to to add in especially in this early section is really what we're beginning with is a predominantly oral culture um you know we have some writings, but we don't we don't have many at all in comparison to someone like Aquinas, right? But well, that's a bit of a that's the clear example. But um, how did how did this? Yeah, I guess how did this dialogue between faith and reason sort of progress as we moved from a predominantly oral culture through to a, a you know a predominantly written culture? Well, I mean, one of the things is the location of theology changes. The location of theology. And the early uh, church, the early centuries of Christianity is mostly from the pulpit. You get a lot, a lot of scriptural commentaries, uh, you know, and then by the medieval period, it's in the school. Um, you get this, the, the um, uh, certainly in the monastery, a certain kind of training, but then in the burgeoning universities, and then the style is different. And so what gets introduced into theology is the question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the way one did theology at the time was still largely oral, but um, there, there was a uh, they had enough um, materials, uh, so to speak, to have kind of these rich conversations developing and to um, be able to look at look at the past uh, in a way that was um uh, uh, more differentiated and richer. And then, um, yeah, and then you got to a point where it used to be to be a theologian, to be a kind of master of theology, which enabled you to teach, you needed to be able to defend a commentary on Peter Abelard's sentences. So Peter Abelard writes kind of like the the best-selling textbook of all time. Almost, you could think of it almost like a legal casebook. And it's been sort of like, Here's where to find things. And he sets it up in a certain way. And uh, this is the predominant textbook for four centuries. But then there's so many commentaries on it. Uh, although Martin Luther actually wrote a commentary on sentences. I mean, everybody wrote a sentence commentary. And then to know the to be a master of the sentences was to be a master of basically, you know, the kind of Latin tradition of Christianity. And there was just too much. And so then uh, it became more divided and there was sort of schools. So if you're a Franciscan or a Scotist or, you know, a, a Thomist or, um, uh, you know, some, yeah, uh, um, you then uh, just to master the kind of Thomist differences within this commentary tradition was already a massive undertaking, precisely because of advances in technology, you know, preservation of manuscripts, these, these things. Um, and then once you get up to the printed word, you know, with with um, 
uh, Gutenberg, uh, then, uh, of course, there's a possibility for people's, uh, you know, it's much more financially feasible to have massive written corpuses of um, individual authors. This might seem like a bit of a clumsy question, but was there, I mean, historically, as, as these beginnings of these schools and this, this sort of splitting, I don't want to say schism, but a splitting in within the truth in a way, was there uh, perhaps um, uh, a popular or even inter-Catholic pushback against this in the sense of, well, hang on, if we're, if we're all Catholics, why is there all these different schools? Yeah, there's a, a real big debate about whether there should be schools of theology. Um, and uh, the the um, the guy who writes the the essay on theological schools in the you know most important Catholic encyclopedia of the 20th century um, is Karl Rahner, and uh, he has interesting things to say in there about theological schools and the problems with it. I mean, the defense of it is that well, we have different spiritualities in the church. And so uh, why don't why can't we have different schools of theology? But then the, the schools become so divided and embittered towards one another that there is something, you know, kind of divisive about that approach of like, well, I'm a Franciscan. And so then, therefore, I take this position against all these other schools. That's, you know, that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, right, were almost competitive at the time, which is quite funny. So I guess that one one important question in a way is is the idea of like where do we draw a line because I guess just to draw in my own personal thoughts on this and like personal journey to becoming a catholic it's like 95% of it can be you go read all this stuff you go just read as much as you can I mean if if you're that way inclined I mean for other people it'd be different but there's always this 5% of of you're gonna to have to take a leap at some point, maybe even one percent. But there's a point where you have to say, "All right, I've got to, I've, I've got to believe now. I've got to have faith now." And I guess, in 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 this time, whether or not you agree or disagree with that, in this dialogue between faith and reason, where did, where where are the historical beginnings of? Okay, we need to we need to sort of draw a line here for the limitations of reason and say, look, this is just where faith has to have its foothold. Yeah, I mean, there's a constant sort of circling back to this. So you do see patterns coming up again. Um, and so you get this in the medieval period and, you know, Bonaventure in his later period really seems to come down hard on some forms of uh, academic learning that he thought weren't rooted enough in prayer. Um and, uh, you know, Luther uh, makes similar kind of arguments. Someone like Kierkegaard makes very similar arguments and really ups the rhetoric and that, you know, this notion of a leap of faith. We got from Kierkegaard, it was he, he takes it from uh, an 18th century German playwright, Gotthold Lessing, who um, liked to annoy theologians without being a professional theologian. Uh, so he he was kind of very irked by the Lutheran Orthodox. And so he uh, he he uses this term leap. You have to make a leap at a certain point. You can't just transition from one thing to another uh, and think you can kind of logically sort of back your way into Christianity. You need some kind of leap. Um, and uh and that there's certain, of course, um, people, there's experiential evidence for this. Um, and there's also, you know, bi biblical um, uh, kind of imploring by Paul, for instance, when he talks about the, the Christ, the cross is foolishness to the Greeks, right? 
through to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, out of interest, is there anyone, you know, a more well-known theologian who perhaps almost lets allow, you know, allows reason the full place and says that we can almost reason ourselves fully to God? Well, yeah, I mean, someone like Anselm, you know, he he has a we we call a proof for the existence of God. I mean, I would call it more of an argument um, than a proof. But he he uh, Anselm, you know, he doesn't cite scripture in this. He doesn't make uh, appeals. He basically just takes you through this exercise of what is known as the ontological proof or argument. Um, and Aquinas does his own arguments for the existence of God. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, many modern philosophers, contemporary analytic philosophers do similar things. Someone like the, you know, the key figure in American analytic philosophy from a kind of Christian apologetic perspective, Alvin Plantinga, um, taught, you know, he has a, a book called Warranted Christian Belief. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, do you personally feel something is lacking there, though, when you come to read these works? Um, I'm more with like Pascal, I would say, where, you know, the purpose of reason to sh is to show the limits of reason and, uh, and that there is some, some, uh, kind of cap, you know, you, you kind of get to the limit and then you realize like, ah, uh, this, what a reason has been able to demonstrate to me is that it can't account for everything. <laughs> and so, Yeah. That, so that would be how do we how do we sort of um, articulate or, or visualize that that limit though? What does that sort of limit look like when you you come to it in in the history that we're talking about here? Yeah, our our um, our reason cannot provide us the positive evidence that we we want it to, um, and so um, I, yes, uh, the that reason itself can't do all of the work that's needed. And um, you get this in the kind of biblical temptation of Jesus when the devil comes in Luke chapter four and says, you know, why don't you fly over Jerusalem and then no one will doubt you, you know, we'll put on like a big circus show. And the uh, it's an interesting temptation. And Jesus says, well, you know, uh, no. Um, and uh, and the reason he rejects that is that it, it almost kind of compels people into belief. Like, mm -hmm. so then if you don't believe, it's your fault, right? You haven't reasoned enough. If you just thought about it the right way, you would come to this conclusion. Well, Newman's very helpful on this and that uh, he's, he says, you know, this, certain arguments work. I mean, Newman was a super rational guy on some level. He says, certain arguments work, but they work for certain people at different stages of their life. And there's no one way for someone to think through this. So he he had a, a more kind of, I guess, you know, flexible position about the role of reason in faith. E even if that example from Luke had happened, though, I feel um, most people still probably wouldn't be compelled into believing, right? And say, oh, well, it's uh, there you go. It's a hallucination, so they still don't have to believe. You know, I don't know what an angel would have to do to finally compel someone to believe in that sense. You, you, I think in a certain sense. I mean, this is why I'm uh, a big part of me is is already a, a bad Catholic because I, I I feel the 
the missionary side of things is already impotent because I know what it's like to be an atheist, right? There's nothing you can do in that in that sense from Luke, right? Christ could probably descend down and shake your hand and you go, well, I just had this weird illusion. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, I mean, you're, well, you're a new Catholic, but I mean, you hear stories about people, you know, well, I've been, you know, whatever, a believer all my life and was always skeptical about Catholicism. And I went in and I heard the mass and I heard it once and I just knew immediately. I mean, I couldn't imagine having an experience like this. You know, uh, I, I don't find, uh, you know, I mean, I love I love the mass. I attend the mass, but I, I don't find it to be a kind of art, you know, an argument sometimes. <laughs> uh, and uh and so um yeah and, and people uh you know a certain kind of encounter uh an encounter with the poor you know can move certain people or just in an intellectual experience uh certainly um so i you know i think where you and i might agree is i think usually something has to happen on the affective level mm-hmm. uh, especially for people who um are um uh, you know, have had have some kind of thing blocking them. And most of us are less intellectual about our beliefs than we think we are. You know, we're less reasonable than we think we are. And it's kind of almost delusion of reason that we think, oh, I, I'm a perfectly rational person. You know, like- <laughs> yeah, I generally think that most times people, myself included, think they're being intellectual. It's either emotional or spiritual. That you know that that saying that's thrown around that most human problems are spiritual problems. I'm pretty much in full agreement with. Did you have a moment like that yourself? But I know you you were cradle Catholic though, right? Yes. But um, did you sort of have that thing where cradle Catholics sort of it becomes new again? Yes, I would say um, in college I had some extraordinary professors who were people of deep integrity who have. You know, some of them happen to be priests, um, and that made a big difference. Um, the The biggest thing is a- after I finished my, you know, bachelor's degree, I went and studied in Tübingen. At that, and, and I was studying theology. I mean, I was interested in theology, but I, I was, um, you know, my in certain aspects, my faith and personal life weren't uh, were kind of a mess, and. Um, I met I met some people there who were really intellectuals and they knew more than I did. And they also had like a belief, a love of the church, um, a zeal, I would say, that I was missing. And I, uh, you know, um, I looked at them and I, I said, you know, I, I, I'm not like them. You know, they have something that I don't have. And that was an important experience for me Mm, mm -hmm. Mm. so i guess one thing you drew in just a little bit earlier is about um so obviously we have scripture and tradition but as this history progresses do you feel we move away i guess we're talking about the catholic church here we move away really from scripture more more and more we move away from scripture and it's less utilized as a way to justify our position and we, we we become more reliant on philosophy well i think um the notion of the uh, sort of sacred book 
um, that has this thing in it that makes it special, almost like, you know, Harry Potter or something. You open a book and it's glowing or something like that. I mean, the the Platonists and the Aristotelians, they they felt that way about their sacred text. You know, they had a very strong notion of sacred text. I don't I don't I mean, scripture still obviously has that function for us, but for the Catholic mentality, the scripture is much more like um, a, uh, a, a something that's integrated into liturgy. You know, if you listen to the mass and you the Eucharistic prayers, it's just full of scripture. You obviously hear scripture um, in uh, red as well. But uh, so the, the whole kind of account is very, very embedded in scripture. But Catholics just don't even know it sometimes. Um, and whereas for Protestants is a little bit more of like, well, the, the Bible will teach us the answer to this. And the thing is, is that um, the, the you know, the, you could think of the creed, for instance, as a set of answers to questions. But the thing about questions is when you get the answer, it often, you know, uh, initiates an additional question. Mm. And so you can't do Scripture doesn't have the answers to all the questions precisely because some questions arise later in time. And so uh, the tradition is in a way a kind of ongoing, you know, you need to make the gospel present to believers. And, uh, you know, there's all kind of powerful, beautiful things in Scripture. It's moving for prayer. It can uh, convince people that God exists. And uh, in no way should it be underplayed. It's sort of, you know, ongoing importance for the lives of believers but um, it, we can't pretend that it has all the answers, just as we can't pretend that you can find the answer about what to do with Darwin in the writings of, you know, Thomas Aquinas mm. uh, or, or, or John Calvin or something. I mean, you may find some things in there that are helpful for the intellectual frameworks, but there are new challenges that we that they didn't have that we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of challenges... I've noticed like with my questions, we're now about to take this turn and I guess I'll open a question, ask a question to open up this real big turn because in a way it's almost, um, not pl- I'm not going to say plain sailing or smooth sailing, but everyone is in agreement for a while historically for at least the direction. It's sort of like a, 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 a mounting of reason with respect to faith to try bolster something. And so would you where would you where would you put maybe this the the peak of reason with respect to like we've sort of reached this summit and then eventually and now we start coming down again because actually as soon as is it it's the big cliche is it really the reformation and then eventually now we start going okay we need to talk about faith again like solely on faith terms and now we're sort of coming back down this slope is it where do you see that peak in a way if you see such a thing yeah, I mean, what, sometimes people talk about the synthesis of faith and reason. And mm. so I think you see people doing different syntheses in history, specifically in the 13th century with, you know, Aquinas and Bonaventure um, and others. You get a kind of synthesis between Aristotelian thought, specifically, um, you know, the the scientific texts of Aristotle, which had been lost, you know, we still had a fair amount of Aristotle, but the scientific texts that were rediscovered um, in the 12th century, those that those are sort of synthesized into an account. And so uh, Aquinas, when, you know, a lot of the language of like transubstantiation, 
to explain the Eucharist and a lot of the sacramental theology, a lot of the moral theology is a kind of integration of elements of Aristotle to, um, you know, Christian faith and what you so then people say, well, we, we you know, that the challenge was to create like a new synthesis between modern philosophy and uh, faith or mm-hmm. theology. And so some people think, for instance, the transcendental Thomas, Marichal, more famously, Rahner are attempting to kind of integrate Kantian philosophical language of Immanuel Kant and German idealism into uh, Christian faith in the way, in a sort of analogous way to how Aquinas did it. Um, now, that's another kind of synthesis, but then people will say that it sort of failed. And uh, and so there are a number of options. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, you could see in the nominalists, especially someone like Occam, mm-hmm. you know, attitudes towards reason and uh, the posing of certain kind of questions that um, already led to a sort of breakdown or a sort of fissure of this synthesis. And then Luther, people will always say, you know, Luther is, comes out of this late medieval nominalism. And so he thought about God in a, in a certain way, and he elevated the sort of will of God above other things. And so then it's a kind of you you start with the will and then it's it's harder to get the kind of synthesis uh and and then it leads to this kind of cracking and luther himself you know has all these great lines about aristotle and you can't integrate aristotle with faith and aristotle is you know uh, yeah I, uh, things i can't say out loud on your podcast what, what does he say you can say them uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's, he calls philosophy a whore and stuff like this. Mm. Do you see, I mean, obviously you, you have your own bias being a Catholic, but do you see this as a dilution of a stream which was trying to sort of, every you know, there was different camps as we've said, but everyone was sort of trying to fight the same fight? Or do you see this as a, as a well, this stream is now veering off and we think the truth is over here. I mean, it's a bit of a tricky question, I guess. But I guess yeah, I, mean, I just want to are... just the emphasis of that word dilution. Like, is something being sort of lost in this schism? Well, um, yeah. So when I'd say that you get a, also a kind of battle between the scholastics and the humanists. Erasmus is, you know, uh, this great humanist who's making fun of the scholastics all the time and talking about how how dumb academic theology is, how people are fighting about how many angels can fit on the pen of a needle. <laughs> and so I I do think that the schools, the scholastic theology in some excesses became overly academic, separated from the spiritual life that you would, you know, you read um I don't know, um, Gregory of Nazianzus, and you get it, you get the sense of theology being very prayerful. You read some scholastic treatises, you read Duns Scotus, and it doesn't feel that way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, uh, yeah, and so you, because of the location of theology in this university context, it does lead to the sort of genre of theology that felt divorced from the lived experience of faith. And all of the pietists whom I talk about a little bit in the chapter after the Reformation, all of the pietists 
you know, they all have this experience of like, well, I was studying theology, but everything was dry for me. And then I, you know, I had this encounter and then, you know, I read the Bible and I started, you know, I wept for four hours and I repented of all my sins. And at that moment, you know, again, an affective experience. And so then they really poo poo uh, academic theology is concerned with other things and not actually concerned with cultivating this experience of faith. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you see a connection then progressing further, you know, further forward into from from that attitude towards what is known and I'll use this in a wider context as you know the philosophical death of god and I don't mean that specifically just as Nietzsche but that era of doubt skepticism and ultimately the death of god do you see that those two having a connection um i uh yeah i think um certainly you know if you get a divorce of faith from reason that this is problematic. And so the pietists are kind of good critics, but then what they're basically trying to do is point out the lack of a synthesis that was caused by, you know, the, 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 they could have returned to sources in Christian, Christian theology that gave them this. Um, and uh, and so, uh, the the I mean, I think the sort of arguments against God and the rise of a sort of godless worldview um, that uh, become very prominent, you, you know, in like the 18th century, I would say um, it's uh, yeah, that you did have this intellectual class kind of leaving Christianity, finding it um, no longer sufficient. Um, and here again, I think that to understand it holistically, yeah, there are intellectual problems that arise that, uh, you know, dealing with um you know, the developments in in physics and kind of Newtonian mechanics, but also one can never underplay the role of the division between churches, the constant fighting, and the fact that, you know, theology had one job to do, which is basically find a way, find theological resources to keep the Christian churches from splintering and also keep as modern technology and warfare became more advanced and destructive to keep different groups from fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, there's all kinds of wars in the medieval period and whatever. I don't want to underplay the brutality, but it's, you know, a few knights getting on horses and going and having battle and then, you know, having a picnic in between or something. And then with the modern warfare, it's just much more destructive and consequential and so we needed to figure out ways not to go to war. Uh, so I guess theology kind of had two jobs to do. And so people found theology to be basically worthless uh, in, in that kind of like modern economics. You know, I mean, the main problem is that we have no problem generating wealth in the global economy. The problem is distributing it. And if enough people don't feel like it's being distributed, then why wouldn't they burn things down? Mm. So economists can have all kinds of ways to sort of figure out how microeconomic investment might work in this area. But this is a big problem to solve. And and, uh, you know, or basic, you know, big macroeconomic questions and economists don't don't seem to be very good at it. Um, And so you have a kind of parallel or analogous situation in the 16th and 17th century with theology. And so I think theology really fails the task that it was faced 
And this has to do with a lot of a dis- dissatisfaction with Christianity, kind of leaving of, uh, you know, departure from the church and intellectual reasons were given. But I don't think that those are always to be taken at face value. Do you think that that because I was going to ask, do you think it failed? And obviously, you know, you sort of answered the question there. Do you think that failure is still ongoing? Um. It's hard to say. Uh, I think um, there's an enormous wealth of good things happening in the church, uh, you know, outside of the Catholic Church um, that are being done, you know, in in Catholic institutes and universities to promote faith and to give people sort of sensible resources. I think there are kind of political, economic realities and uh, demographic uh, realities of where people live, the kind of lifestyles they're embedded in that make actual religious experience hard for people to encounter mm-hmm. in, a, in, in a lot of different ways. And so I, it's hard to just kind of blame religious institutions for failing, you know, because we don't, we 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 just we don't understand how much our brains are affected by iPhones and how much you know how can you hear God when you always have earbuds in? <laughs> I think yeah, I think it was difficult for something something as as large and with such a long history as the church. You know, for almost however many years it is eighteen hundred years, eighteen hundred and fifty years, the pace sort of remained the same and then all of a sudden it picked up at a phenomenal speed and every 10 years or so you had a, a seemingly big uh, philosophical change or you know moving forward and and i guess the question there is as as we're in the the you know the, the sort of infamous postmodern era where someone like Jacques Derrida is sort of um talking about well how can we even have truth do you think as a in the sense that faith and reason are the synthesis towards the truth, what relationship do you think faith and reason should have in that synthesis with respect to something like postmodernism? Should they try work with it or should they start beginning to draw lines and say, look, go have your fun, but we're going to, we're going to actually take things seriously over here. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting space to be in because we, you know, it took a while for the church to kind of fully account to modernity mm-hmm. and then post-modernity came along. And so modernity says, you know, there's, you know, for something to be reasonable, it has to be kind of universal, necessary truths, and it has to kind of meet the standard. And there's a problem with history because it doesn't. And here's a, you know, scientific method should be the common method for how we know about everything. And so there's all kinds of, you know, challenges for Christianity because our truths are not just rational, necessary truths. They're truths about events that occur in history. And there's, you know, again, belief in the supernatural, these sorts of things that necessarily lie outside of the scope of uh, scientific investigation. Um, and so there's a way in which postmodernism said, well, this is just one narrative. You know, this is a grand narrative. And though that that's a story that makes you think a certain way. And so we can have another grand narrative over there. And so Christianity can basically say, like, yeah, a modern secular story is one story to tell. Actually, we have a better story. Right. <laughs> and so some postmodern theologians want to do this and they see postmodernity uh, as a nice way, a space in which to kind of thrive. Um 
others uh, have, have said, well, once you get into that space, you're kind of giving, you're saying, well, reason doesn't matter enough. And science. And so once you unhook yourself from that realm, then, uh, or a kind of a f- affirmation of scientific way of thinking, not scientist, but scientific way of thinking, then you're just saying, oh, it's all kind of, yeah, it's all just faith. Uh, and so I I have some sympathy as if you know, you know in the final chapter of the book with certain kind of you know postmodern encounters with Christian you know uh, Christian postmodern ways of thinking that um, in a way can kind of recover some premodern thought and in other ways can um, you know develop different arguments that seem uh, you know especially to be able to kind of catch the ear of the postmodern inclined. Mm. I mean, where do you where do you personally see the future of this this dialogue heading? It's a big question. The dialogue between Wait, faith and reason at large. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of people doing very good work. I would say um, the relationship between theology and the social sciences is one that I think people need to. Um, really uh, do good theoretical work on. Um, I think, uh, you know, people like uh, the aforementioned John Milbank have pointed out the danger of theology, just kind of saying, whatever the social sciences say about this, we should just take it face value. I mean, there's a way to learn from the social sciences without, um, you know, believing every kind of claim they make about ultimate reality. Um, but um, yeah, you know, there's there's um, you know there's all kinds of things happening in theoretical physics that um, you know show that there's uh, yeah the way to understand the universe is probably not a kind of Newtonian mechanistic way to understand it, and so I think there's a, a lot of room. Uh, and one of the claims I tried to make at the end of the book is that the relationship between faith and reason is like you know. Build, building a bridge across two sort of swaths of land. But what reason means in history moves, right? Mm-hmm. And what faith means also moves. So you can't just have one way to br- build that bridge. You can't say it's we're going to stand right here and it's 50 meters across to the other side. You you need to constantly be kind of like rebuilding. Now, some people might be frustrated at that, like, why can't we have a kind of final answer to this but i you know i i think that what you see in in history is the best theologians finding different ways to think about this creatively and they offer a lot of really rich models some of which you know have never really been you know been properly received or have been forgotten Mm -hmm. is there anything you'd like to add about your book that you feel we've overlooked well i mean Thanks so much for promoting it. Of course, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to come back on your podcast, which I've listened to many times since I first discovered it. And, um, you know, it's it's a real honor for me to have uh, you recommending this work. And I'm glad that you like it. And um, uh, yeah, and I, I hope, uh, well, I'm also glad for your encouragement to be 
in, in terms of audience and that it's not a book just written for people who are academic theologians. I hope the academic theologian could, you know, find something worthwhile in it, but it's written for lay people. It's written for interested parties. It's written for, you know, uh, people's beginning in theology or trying to find a kind of footing in theology. And uh, and I hope that, you know, I intended to write it in an accessible way with, you know, reasonable sections on these different thinkers. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm very encouraged that you like the book. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, it was, it was, yeah. I, I, I really would recommend it, and I'll be sure to um, put the links for it in the description below. So it's Catholic University of America Press. I'm sure they'd prefer you get it from their website, and then I imagine it's on all the other usual places online as well. Um, what are you working on now? I'm working on a project on tradition, um, and uh, it's a big project on on tradition. Um, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm also finishing a translation of a 19th century German Catholic theologian, Johann Adam Muller, his his last book um but uh, the the project on tradition is um uh basically a, an attempt to um forge or kind of recall a particularly catholic way of thinking about tradition and to raise up this uh these resources from the last two centuries from people like you know Yves Congar and others um Johann Sebastian Dry and another 19th century German who, who uh paid great attention to you know developing a theology of tradition to combat problems in their day and I think we're entering a new era of a kind of need for a theology of tradition in light of critiques that say you know, Christianity isn't just problematic on the edges. It's not just, oh, well, there's these, you know, American evangelicals who started voting the wrong way, or there's, you know, uh, this fringe movement that's a cult, uh, or uh, there's, you know, bad pastor in town. Um, but uh, the, the, that have basically instead argued that the, the kind of Christian tradition is tainted all the way down. You know, it's, uh, it's it, um, it's sort of, it, you know, intermingled with uh, various isms, you know, sexism, ableism, racism, and that these discourses are not something that are easily kind of removable, like, you know, ivy wrapped around a tree or something, but it's almost like kind of mold in the bread. Mm. So you, you can't really recover. You can never have the full notion of, women's equality if you are a christian because of the biblical use of thought mm -hmm. so you know arguments like this which they certainly have merit to them um and uh there's something to be taken seriously about what these claims are making they're not to be blithely dismissed at all but um I want to sort of ask seriously, well, what if we take the consequences of this discourse seriously? Mm. And so what I find now problematic is a lot of people uplifting these discourses, but not really willing to make a, a case for like, but here's how you can preserve this tradition. Here's how you can value it. Here's something worth recovering in it if it is in fact tainted by all these things. And so 
Um, uh, it's a fun project because I, you know, I, I agree with some of the critiques um, in, I guess, a more modified form, but I also sense a real kind of failure among contemporary theologians who want to use these critiques to say what then could be justified in it. Mm. It sounds like a good project. Thanks. I, it'll it'll take me a while to work out, but uh, when I do, uh, this is the first podcast I'll want to go on. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, I'd I'd love to have you back, and it's also it's a discussion that is in the is in the air with regard younger people entering the church as well. So I think it's uh, yeah, I think I think it's an, an important book to be written. But um, yeah, Grant Kaplan, um, I think it's a good place to finish up. Um, Thank you so much, James. Take care.